What is going on, all you amazing people out there? Welcome to another episode of The Clint Norris Show. Hopefully, everybody out there is having a fantastic week, a fantastic day, maybe even a fantastic morning. I, myself, am definitely not a morning person, but shout out to all the morning DJs out there and all the morning people. So, I usually don't plug like uh, things I'm not sponsored by, but hey, check it out. This is what I'm drinking today, Ghost Energy. It is uh, completely sugar-free, and this is probably the best energy drink I have ever had in my life. Amazing. You can find these, I believe, at, um, oh, it's not Super America. What is it called? It's not Super America anymore. What is it called? Oh, no. Forgetting. Speedway. Speedway. That's what it's called. You can check them out at Speedway. I think GNC also carries them, or your local gym might also carry them. But, uh, yeah, check it out. All right, and as always, it is time to answer your questions. All right, so this is what we got this week. Uh, when will you invite more famous people, Clint? When will you invite more famous people, Clint? I don't know if you're implying more of the same famous people or people who are more famous. Uh, my my answer to you is, uh, he who does not know the answer shall overcome the question. There you go. <laughs> okay, what else we got here? What else we got? What else we got? Clint, you didn't date. If you're talking about back in the day, no, I've only dated three people in my entire life, believe it or not. And uh, when is next episode? Well, that's why you got to subscribe. In order to know when I have a new episode out, you got to subscribe. You'll get that little notification. So I'm going to take this opportunity to do a shameless plug. Feel free to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to comment, like, and of course, like I said, subscribe. So this week on the podcast, we have the one and only Elon Rubin, drummer of Paramore, Nine Inch Nails, Angels and Airwaves, and his own band, The New Regime. Super awesome guy. Very down-to-earth, very knowledgeable, just an overall really cool guy. So that's all I have for you this week, and we are going to get right to it. Elon Rubin, what is going on, man? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. How are you? I am doing excellent. So I want to say, first of all, congrats on your win. I saw on your uh, Instagram, Legend of Zelda. No. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, you. you finally beat like it. I was like, what did, I, what did I win that I didn't know about? Now, <laughs> I, I would just like to correct that statement. I have beat it, beaten it numerous times throughout my life. Oh, really? Okay, but okay. It was the only time I beat the whole thing without losing once. You know, it was, it was pretty momentous. Okay, so you, know, you knew like where to go and like oh, yeah. everything. Yeah, okay, I'm okay. I'm pretty, I used to play a lot of video games when I was a kid. And that kind of stopped around... 12 years old where I was like, I need to grow up and stop wasting time with these childish games. I need to focus on music. And, you know, it was, it was absurd for a 12 year old to just feel that way and donate all of his video games and stuff. But there is something about those original NES or Super Nintendo games that to me is incredibly nostalgic. So yes, if occasionally I'm in a mood to just kind of you know, sit in an old memory of, of joy, I can put on, play any one of those games and uh, just have a nice time. And because I know them well, because they're seared in my mind from childhood, I know it's not going to take me a lot of time. Whereas That's true, yeah. <laughs> my, my wife and I, she, she actually had a very similar sort of moment in her life where she grew up playing video games and she decided to stop so her and i kind mm. of every, every now and then was like you know what let's have some guilt-free video game time and uh we played newer games and i'm like this is this stuff is so vast and deep i'm like i can't spend more time doing this oh but yeah last night i went down memory lane and she's like you coming to bed i was like you know what i'm having quite a run right now i can't <laughs> stop this and then two hours later she's like are you still there i'm like this is pathetic, but I haven't died yet. And I can't stop. And, you know, a man on a mission. I had to I had to do my duty. You're on a roll. I mean, you can't stop then. It just dawned on me. I have no idea how old you are. I'm 34. I'm 32. Okay, so I'm just right behind you. There you go. Yeah, so, you know, I'm weird. What can I say? Always have been, always will be. That's okay. I, I kind of also had my moment of, like, why am I still playing video games? Probably, like... Maybe like 16. I was like, what? Like, yeah. what am I doing? 
like it's, it's a beautiful day outside like my friends are texting me like why why am i playing this game you know it's funny because i had a very distinct moment where the the first band i was ever in with my my older brothers and their high school friends or probably at that point college friends but we did a a recording session in San Diego where if you were to pay for a block of time that was like 8 p.m. to 6 in the morning when nobody wanted to record, it was cheaper. So mm-hmm. we recorded then, and I just recall getting back home at 7 in the morning or 7.30 after having been up all night, and I went straight to the TV to play something, and I'm like, what am I doing right now? <laughs> I've just been doing stuff and I had to come right back here to sit in front of the TV and play. I'm like, that's enough. And that was <laughs> some weird turning point. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's for better or worse, but something clicked. But every now and then it's nice to just kind of zone out. And Yeah. So I have a, a buddy of mine, Tommy Tellerico. He's got yeah. this uh, show that he puts on called Video Games Live. It's pretty, pretty intriguing. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> Are you trying to steer my career into that of a gamer is that what's happening here hey maybe you never know i mean like i mean have you ever been like approached for making music for games or anything like that no i mean i've i've heard it's fun i i'm actually in the middle of working on my fourth film project which is why everything's a mess and there are papers everywhere and it's oh okay sweet i've heard that the the writing for games is pretty different and I find it intriguing, but I haven't I haven't been approached. I've been approached to play on a video game, but not as a composer. I played drums on on Cyberpunk. Did you really? Yeah, I played drums on that. I've never oh, played. Wow. The game. I've sure. I know all the hype that surrounded it and the uh, the disgruntled gamers with some sort of bug when it finally came. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I never played it. So, I mean, it was fun, but. Even with that minimal experience, you know, I was playing who knows how many beats, tens of beats, could have been a hundred beats at different tempos. And then they kind of just did their thing because what's weird is even in the few more contemporary games that I've played, you kind of hear when, when things are looping. And I guess you have mm. to write music in a way that is designed to loop, but then smoothly transition into something else as the game develops or as you go to a new space or a new scene or whatever. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, I'm intrigued by the process, but I haven't done it yet. Okay. Gotcha. And maybe to, to back up a little bit, you were like pretty much like a prodigy. Like when well, you were a kid, I, I did start, I started very young. I yeah. uh, had the, uh, the fortunate combination of natural talent paired with an obsessive personality. So the second I dove into drumming in particular, but music as a whole, I, I never looked back. And that has been the thing mm. that has taken up 90 some percent of my mind since I was seven and a half, eight years old. So mm. I did, uh, I, I did uh, accomplish something. I'm still proud of to this day, but some of the, uh, the, the drummer nerds would know this, but there's a, are you a drummer by any chance? A musician? I am a former drummer. Funny that you ask. <laughs> well, you probably know about Modern Drummer then. I take it, the magazine. Um, you know, the thing that you probably see at Guitar Center but never wanted to buy because you're like, why am I going to read about drums? I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, when I was 12, I won their Best Undiscovered Drummer in the World competition in the, the uh, 18 and below category i did that when i was 12 and that was something i'm still proud of because it's you know the older i get the crazier it seems yeah no kidding uh, but it's obviously another lifetime ago but you know that would be uh an indicator of spending a good amount of time working on my craft as a youngster do you feel at all like maybe you missed out a little bit like growing up like did did you go to like high school or uh i did go to high school but uh actually that's, that's a good question because uh, I went for a while, but this is a very good question. And to answer in a broader sense, no, I don't feel that I missed out. In fact, I think that I gained far more than anybody would have by certain stages in life. And that has a lot to do with how prepared I was and how seriously I took the experiences and opportunities that either came my way or that I worked towards. 
And what I mean by that is, is I, I grew up, as I said, the youngest of, of three, and my parents were and are super supportive of music. So I wasn't encouraged to begin with in the sense of, hey, you should try playing music. But the second that my dad, who's a musician in the family, realized that I had something as simple as just rhythm and recognized that I wasn't just hitting drums and making noise, he then encouraged me because he saw how much I was enjoying it. And once he started teaching me things and I picked them up very quickly, I suppose it was one of those things for my parents where it seemed like it would have been a huge disservice to me if I didn't pursue something that I had picked up so naturally, you know, almost mm -hmm. a, a waste of sorts. But that being said, they were adamant that I did well in school. They were adamant I did not misbehave or take everything as just fun and jokes. They're like, you can pursue music, but you need to realize that it's not just fun. It is a, It will be a career. It's a business. It needs to be taken mm. seriously and respected. So I've never had a, I'm just going to sound boring to any listeners here, but I've never been the rebellious type. So, you know, I followed the rules. I worked and I, I progressed. So to answer your high school question, by the time I was just about to start my second semester of sophomore year, so this was still the, just the very end of my first semester, I had to check out into a homeschooling program. Now, this was an accredited institution that, for example, child actors or people who have careers at early phases in life still need to get their... Uh, their academics and their studies taken care of. So my parents were adamant that I did not get my GED and test out or that I went to some easy sort of, yeah, 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 here's your diploma. So they insisted mm -hmm. on an accredited institution and that I graduate with honors. But by that point, I, I had to do it because I was touring too much. So my mm -hmm. first sort of actual two, three week stint happened when I was probably around 13, the summer of, summer of eighth grade, maybe. But by freshman year and sophomore year, I was out for weeks at a time. And the arrangement with the school was that I could leave for three weeks at a time, but had to come back to turn in my work and get the a new batch of coursework. And I couldn't abide by that by the end of my first semester and sophomore year. So I checked into homeschooling and I finished earlier. And oh, wow. I was just out and doing it. And you know, I, I can see how certain people would perhaps ask the question, do I feel like I missed out? And I, from my perspective, I don't know how you could feel like you're missing out when you're, you know, at that time traveling the country. The first international tour I ever did was Japan when I was 15 years old. Wow. And I'm out doing these things when kids are worrying about that math test that they don't want to take on Monday. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. It's like, well, I have my whole life and career over here, and you've got, you know, high school, which is, you know, three, three, four years. And now here you are working on, you said, your fourth movie? Yeah. Holy yeah. smokes. Now, now, we can get into that later if you'd like. But yeah, scoring sure. is something that I was finally able to dive into as a result of the world ending a couple of years ago. Okay, last high school era uh, question. Did you end up going to prom? No. Okay. <laughs> it's really odd, but um, I do recall I did go to, so when I was still physically going to high school, I did go to one sort of winter formal and it was such bullshit. I hated it. It was not. Oh, no. It was just, I mean, nothing bad happened. It's just one of those things where you feel like you should go, oh, this is part of life. Went to it. I'm like, this is stupid. <laughs> people in shitty rented formal wear have yeah. this isn't fun it's not fun at all so that was that and certainly from that point forward i definitively realized i did not care about any sort of you know social high school must do's in life i did not care the slightest about prom i don't even know when prom was but i do recall putting in the effort to wake up at six in the morning to go watch my friends graduate on the old uh, college football field down <laughs> the street where I grew up and like, well, 
Good stuff, guys. Yeah. So like right from the beginning, you like pretty much had a good idea of what you wanted to do then. Absolutely. In fact, I can't recall. I can't seriously recall a time in life when music wasn't the thing I wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there are the the couple of handfuls of, of pre-music memories, but they're yeah. they're almost nothing in comparison to the to the rest of life. Mm-hmm. So it, here's something I noticed about you. You play the hi-hat with your left hand. That is something. like how do you like where did that like how did that even like occur in your mind? Because I was like, wait a second. No, that actually makes way more sense. So you're not crossing your arms. But I've never uh, seen anybody do that ever. There are a few people who do that. And I have to admit, really? even when I see it, sometimes it looks awkward to me when I see other people do it. But, okay. But yeah, it does make a lot of sense. And it came from being a naive eight-year-old where my dad taught me something and said, practice that and come back into the house and get me when you think you got it. So while he was gone, I was playing it. And I'm like, this is closer. Why, why would I do this? And yeah. I did it. And it was natural, and I brought him back in, and he had a, a puzzled look on his face from what I could recall, where it sounded right, but it didn't look right. <laughs> but what's more important, you know, obviously, it's sounding right. So he took me probably a few months later to a Dave Weckl clinic. I don't even remember what the store what the music store was in San Diego, but during the Q&A portion of the clinic, my dad asked him, he said, let him do whatever he wants, whatever comes naturally. Now, the thing that is odd about it is that it's not a matter of me being a left-handed person. The only thing I do, the only things I do left-handed are hit the hi-hat and write. Everything else, Hmm. I am right-handed. I play the rest of my instruments right-handed. I kick with my right. I throw with my right. I play tennis right-handed. So, that doesn't make any sense. And as a result of being somewhat in this ambidextrous world, there are plenty of things that feel just as comfortable leading with my right hand, which is why I have my primary ride on my right side. Mm -hmm. So most of the times when I'm playing on the ride, I'm right-handed. When I'm on the hi-hat, I'm left-handed. I start a lot of fills either left or right, depending on what type of fill. So there, there's just a weird sort of coordination hybrid that sure out naturally. So can you like interchange then? Like, right. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. But playing right-handed properly will never feel as comfortable as playing open-handed because, you know, this whole thing doesn't, that's the thing that doesn't make sense. You know, yeah. here I have complete freedom. So, but playing on the ride, I, I love it. And that's why I ride and I crash mainly as a right-handed player. Yeah, you can just go crazy on the crash or China Boy. Is it still called a China Boy? I've never heard of the boy, but... Oh, really? It, uh, it, it is a China. I haven't had one of those since about 2008. Okay, maybe maybe times have changed and I should stop saying that. No, I, don't, <laughs> I don't even own one anymore. Oh, really? Maybe they're out of style. Maybe. Maybe they just became so metal. I was like, a, we, we might need to part ways. Not that there's anything wrong with metal, but... I yeah, just, maybe it just became so niche. Yeah. You know. I heard you in... I was listening to a couple of podcasts, and you said, like, right before you play, it doesn't matter where you are, you always get anxiety right before you play. Like, has that ever gotten better? It, it does. Now, mm. I need to be clear. You're correct, but it's not a sort of stage fright. Okay. In fact, I feel comfortable when I'm finally on stage. It's Mm. leading up to the stage that drives me insane because you got to think psychologically, let's say you're on tour, right? Have you ever toured? Maybe you have, and I'm just going to go on about it. I've been on, uh, on long road trips, but no, I've never been on tour. Well, it's the sort of thing where you're at a venue and you know that in, in 10 hours you're going to play a show. And then five hours pass by and you're like, oh, in five hours I'm going to play a show. And then in four, and then in three, and then in two. And then that last hour when you're actually kind of in that mode of, okay, it's finally going to happen. 
there's just this nervous energy that's been pent up all day. It's more mm. of like a, it's more of like an anticipation that drives me nuts. Okay. You know, whereas if at any point in the day, somebody tapped me on the back and said, it's time to go play. I'd be like, great, let's do it. But the waiting and the anticipation drives me nuts. So it does get better as a tour progresses. But for example, when Nine Inch Nails started playing shows, probably about halfway through this year, maybe a little bit before, it was the first time Nine Inch Nails had played in almost four years, I think, or maybe about four. Oh, really? Yeah, it had been a while. Wow. And I had played with Angels and Airwaves in, in, in 2021. But between that, you know, if you haven't played a show in eight to 10 months, that's a long time. It's You're not, mm. you know, once you're on stage, you pick up where you left off. But the traveling and the waiting around, that's something that once you're out of that mode, you kind of have to get back into it. It's not... Mm -hmm. It's not like playing where your body just goes and you know what you need to do. But that being said, once you're on tour and the second night and the third night and fourth night, so on and so forth, it then becomes a routine that you're used to. Okay. You know, but that gotcha. is my least favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tour life, like what do you, like how do you prefer to travel? Like what do you do when you're on the road for you know, 10 hours a day or whatever it is. Like, what do you, like, how do you spend your time? My preference is irrelevant. I do what they tell me to do, you know, whatever the team's doing, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> it's honestly dependent on the band. It's also dependent on the type of shows. And what I mean by that is, it's like, for example, take the, uh, the angels tour I was talking about in 2021, the whole thing was buses. And I love riding uh, on a tour bus. I love, I love the uh, the rocking motion of just driving. Puts me to sleep. I suppose, yeah. Huh. And some, some people hate it. I I feel bad for those people who just can't sleep on a bus. Now I have either some weird superpower or a disorder where I can fall asleep anywhere, almost at any time. So I just <laughs> go with the flow, and there's no problem. So I like that. But the the nail stuff this year was very sort of piecemeal, where there wasn't a long tour at any point. It was like three to five shows here, three to five shows there, a couple weeks there. And as a result of that, you spend more time flying than you do driving. That okay. I've done the complete opposite where when I've been out with my own band, it's three, four guys in a van and it's endless highways through the U S and could be fun, could be boring depending on who you're talking to. Hmm. You know? So do you bring like any books? like to read with you or anything? I do. Uh, when I, so here's what's funny. When I'm out, say, touring my solo stuff, I don't have room for anything, in which case the iPad is my best friend because I can put all the books that I want, so on and so forth. Of uh, Nine Inch Nails, for example, we all have wardrobe cases, these big, big road cases. Now, I pretty much wear this all the time. So it's just this big empty box which is where I get to bring back my treasures from the road. Could be books, could be bourbons or scotches, depending on where I'm at. Could be instruments that I've picked up along the way. So I have this sort of traveling case that I just fill with whatever it is that I acquire while I'm out. But uh, if I don't have that, the books are pretty much on the iPad. Okay, but that I, makes sense. I do prefer paper. Always prefer paper. Same here. I'm starting to get a small collection. This is uh, my most recent one here. Let me grab it. If you're into like uh, human behavior and everything, excellent book. Uh, it's called Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. I'm only like halfway through it so far because there's a lot of like medical terminology that I am not familiar with. But yeah, it's definitely worth a, worth a read. It kind of goes into like the nature versus nurture argument, um, why certain people turn out the way they do. It's really, really interesting. I wrote it down because that seems interesting because I feel like people are just getting shittier and shittier and dumber and dumber by the day. I don't want that to sound pretentious or like I'm on some sort of high horse park. No, uh, yeah, down. I know what you mean. But, oh, I yeah. think the internet is just melting brains left and right. Yeah, well, it's like uh, part of the reason I bought it is is sort of that reason. It's like how does somebody end up like committing horrible crimes and yet they have like a brother who is like an engineer who's, you know, 
really successful. Like how, like how does that happen? Yeah. Do you, uh, seems like you might enjoy some of the Malcolm Gladwell books. Have you heard of him or his stuff? Uh, I don't think so. Outliers is a good one. David and Goliath. Okay. Very interesting. He'll kind of find, uh, an intriguing question. Like you just asked, why do some people do this and some people do that? And that'll be the premise of whichever book he's written. And they're fun, easy reads. They're enlightening in some ways and entertaining to say the least. Okay. I'll definitely have to check that out. I wrote Uh, behave down. That's, uh, that sounds good. Okay. So let's switch gears here a little bit. Okay. So on Instagram, I, I asked you guys out there, if you had any questions for Alon, and this is what we got. I pared it down to the best, like, four. I got eight. What's that? 50% didn't make the cut. <laughs> well, I mean, like, was, like, somebody asked how big... I'm like, I'm not going to f*** him that. Like, was this yeah. email? Mail. Hmm. I think it was a Blink fan. <laughs> yeah, no Yeah. No kidding. That's, like, a whole... That's, like, a whole other thing we, we can get into, like, uh, infatuated, like... Denomination. That's yeah, the, the Tom DeLong denomination. That is a <laughs> that's a great uh, yeah, great religion. All right, uh, first question is, what is it like to work with Trent Rasner? It's great. <laughs> it is great. Uh, I I love these uh these like these grand questions that could just be answered in one word. Great. It is good. Yeah, I uh. I've, I mean, you are very knowledgeable in terms of other podcasts or interviews that I've done. So I'll try to switch some words around. So it doesn't well, sound like heard, I mean, I like to low level creep, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is great. I get along with Trent really well. I admire and really respect his work ethic and I'm not saying this is some sort of backhanded pat on my back, but leading up to my joining of Nine Inch Nails in 2009, I had already been in my fair share of bands and known a good handful of extremely unprofessional, ungrateful musicians who had either gotten somewhere by luck and didn't appreciate it or couldn't figure out why they weren't pursuing past a certain point all while being incredibly unprofessional and many times unintelligent. So by the time I joined Nine Inch Nails and I saw the way Trent sort of ran the operation, I just remember having a huge sigh of relief, not because I didn't expect that, but because I had finally arrived in an environment where I was like, oh God, finally like-minded people who expect excellence, work towards excellence, and Mm -hmm. know what they want. And it's always been that way. And it's coming up on 14 years, 14 years now. Uh, No, yeah, 13, 14 years. I mean, I joined when I was 20. That's why I'm having a tough time doing the math. But, you know, if we go off of 20 and I'm 34 now, it's 14 years. But 2009 was 14 years ago. Yeah, somewhere around Oh, no. What is happening? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I uh, love it. And there's there's nothing like a Nine Inch Nail show in particular. And we put a lot of work into rehearsing to get that show up and running. But just as an experience, it's an onslaught. And to be a part of that is great. And I always appreciate it. And I always have a tremendous amount of fun and satisfaction from being a part of that dude it's so like satisfying and like like you can almost like let out relief when you find someone who like gets you and like gets your own kind of personal philosophy it's just mm-hmm. kind of like oh, all right yeah we're gonna be friends yeah like <laughs> like yeah. i can do this and and that goes for everybody in the band we all get along extremely well and it's it's just a good time uh all right next question do you have a favorite show or place that you've performed? So you mean like my favorite TV show and then my favorite venue? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't have a, a favorite show. I have moments that are burned in my memory, but it's not necessarily a show in particular or because of a venue. I mean, right now what's coming to mind is 
surprise, surprise, last time we played London this uh, last summer, I finally succeeded through through a channel of, of people to get Jimmy Page to a show, a guitar player from Led Zeppelin. And mm. for me, being able to play in front of my hero, that moment in time will always be burning my brain. Um, that venue also is Brixton Academy. I had my 18th birthday there playing a show. Oh, really? That's a, that's a wow. reason why that sticks out to me. You're playing a place that my heroes have played, whether it be Earl's Court in London or the O2 in London. I mean, all my heroes pretty much are British gods. So anytime <laughs> I've sort of performed in their footsteps or in front of them, that's been a momentous occasion for me. But, you know, bringing it to the North American continent, Red Rocks is always a beauty. It's a just fantastic place to play. Uh, and a lot of festivals, you know, there's nothing quite like a great festival show because you can just be inspired by not just the, the crowd of people, but how well the event is put on. There's just a different sort of headspace where... As opposed to, you know, going from venue to venue and sitting in a dressing room, you're in the middle of this beautiful field, uh, oftentimes, like, say, a nice European mm. festival, like Pink Pop or Reading and Leeds. You're just in the middle of, of the outdoors, which is, I mean, American festivals have been growing in number over the last decade or so. But I think for a long time, that has been primarily a European thing. And more often than not, or often enough, I should say, those mm -hmm. shows have proven to just be very memorable. Yeah, I suppose if you see kind of, um, you know, a sea of people, like, and it's kind of dark every night, like seeing something open and that's bright. Yeah, I guess I never even thought about that. And uh, I mean, here's one that, that sticks to my mind, and it has nothing to do with the show itself. The, sure. By the performance, I mean, but I, my first time ever in Austria, which has been, which has become, potentially my favorite place on earth. I played this festival called Frequency Fest or Frequency Festival. I don't know, but it was in the middle of these mountains, this like almost alpine retreat looking place, just a 10, 15 minute drive from Salzburg. And for me, that was momentous because that's where Mozart was born. And he is a true musical hero of mine. And, I love his as well as his music, as well as many other composers, but I'm here to play a show yet. I'm in the middle of one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And I'm getting to go visit the birthplace of yeah. possibly the greatest my musical mind of all time in one of the most stunning landscapes I've ever seen. And I'm there because of a show that I had to play later in the evening. So that whole day is something I will always remember. And I was there for a concert, but ironically, the concert is not the thing that sticks out to me, you know? So, and it was also a, a great coincidence because it was his 250th anniversary of, of his birth in, uh, oh, wow. he was born in 1756. So I'm like, what are the odds that I'm here on this, this sort of momentous year where the, the whole town is just celebrating this guy, which they usually are anyway, but the 250th made it. Yeah. So this next question plays a little bit into what you're sort of saying right now. What is the meaning of life? Man, if I had the answer to that, I, <laughs> I don't know where I would be right now. I'd probably be on a book tour somewhere. Uh, <laughs> fixing people's lives for a hefty price. Oh, I, well, you are handy. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. If you need, if the answer to life or the meaning of life is putting up shelves well, I can definitely point you in the right <laughs> direction. Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's, I'm not going to be able to give a sort of unique or novel perspective on this, but you know, if you, if you look at life in the sort of Viktor Frankl uh, philosophy, finding what your true calling is could be the, the, the meaning to life. You know, you can be happy if you're satisfied with what you're doing. And if you're happy 
satisfied what you're doing, the odds of you finding like-minded people you can spend the rest of your life with person, I should say, uh, is, uh, the, the odds are higher. So there you have it. Find what you truly feel is your calling and run with it. There you go. And the, the final question takes a complete 180. Uh-oh. Who would, who would win in a fight, Clint or you? I don't, she, I don't think I can, I don't, I think you would win. I don't think I could take you. You, you're intimidated by me is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the patchy facial hair, huh? This is what's making. Well, I mean, if just looking at photos of you, you seem kind of like stoic and it's like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to mess with that guy. Like, no, thank you. <laughs> Great. All right. I'm going to go upstairs and tell my wife that I'm stoic. <laughs> Who are you talking to right now? Who's filling your head with this nonsense? Um, all right. Now I got, I got some videos I want to show you. All right. All right. So it is video time. Okay, here we go. You ready for this? The one and only Danny DeVito playing the drums. Probably my favorite drum solo of all time. 11 seconds of glory. Yes. Okay. I'm taking these. I mean, that's, that's the way you do it. Beautiful. You know, I'd be a Absolutely. liar if it wasn't that easy. <laughs> so speaking of... The new regime. Dude, you have a song that is a banger. Do right by me. I try to get a hold of you, but you shut me out. The only thing I wanna do. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that whole uh that whole album is a heartbreaker for me. I spent a good amount of time putting together my largest piece of work. It's a lengthy album. I mean the deluxe has twenty songs on it. And the mm-hmm. reason why it was so Lengthy is that it wasn't a double album, although there's more than enough material for that. But we released it in sort of quarters, like four song EPs that would come out every couple of months. So that at the end of it, you had this one giant piece of work. Now, the sad part is, is that it came out in March of 2020. So mm-hmm. finally comes out and the, the world ends. Um, was literally on tour and had to drive home because the, the country, the world shut down. So this that period i'm like all of this effort and time into something that is just non-existent at this point hmm. you know so that was important but i think it's a great album i'm very proud of it what's uh so what's going on with angels and airwaves hey man you know as good as i do um <laughs> you know what's funny is that tom and i have actually been in i've seen tom more in person in the last four or five months than I have seen him outside of a band setting since I've known him. So, oh, really? Yeah. So Tom and I get along great. Always in touch at least every, every couple of weeks or so. I mean, it's when I say in touch, I mean the transferring of some stupid video of some kind, <laughs> but uh, still in touch nonetheless. And obviously with him rejoining blink, which I congratulate him on, of course, He's just been focused on that. Okay. As, as he should be. I think the, the tour dates that they already announced for next year are quite hefty, especially for a band who I don't think has been out that much in, in a long time. But yeah, in a, I mean, it's already been a tremendous success and they haven't even hit a note yet. So I think that's going to, the tour is going to do incredibly well. How can you not enjoy that? And I'm glad he and they are doing it. Yeah, I always find it bizarre that for some reason or another, there was a hiatus or there was uh, him not being there for a few years. I'm just right. Yeah. How difficult could it be to really, really get this thing together? Now, I am by no means a therapist or psychologist of any kind, but I'm like, no brainer. Of course, if you're all into doing it, you should do it. You should have done it a long time ago. Yeah. So, um, don't understand that but i'm happy they're doing it and a lot of people are obviously happy about it so i think it's great yeah i mean it's good to see them all you know happy and healthy and you know finally back together again after a while yeah i will say though i've never truly been in a three-piece band that has to be a weird power dynamic 
I suppose, yeah. I'm not saying this based on anything Tom has told me. I'm actually saying it. I mean, The Police is one of my favorite bands, obviously a three-piece. And because you got to think about it, that that triangular force, it's either every man for himself or two on one. (laughs) Oh, Cream as well. Cream is another one of my favorite bands. And that was the the original power trio, if you will. And yeah, Mm. it's either each man for his own, as that band was two on one as uh it has been in other other groups but that's got to be more difficult than being in a four or a five piece or just a solo artist yeah um i what what else did you say um i think it was on a live like blink fans have like a very high infatuation for the band it's unreal yeah yeah (laughs) okay so okay hold on so coming kind of coming back to this book of like human psychology, do you th- do you think that's because lots of teens discover that band while their hormones are going, you know, crazy in their bodies and everything's changing, and they and they find this band that releases um, what's the pleasure chemical in your brain? I can't think of it off the top of my head. Uh, serotonin. Ser- yeah, serotonin. No, it's I don't know if it's oxytocin. I don't know what it, what it is, but it um, could be dopamine, that dopamine. dopamine. Dopamine, yeah. It could be that every time they hear like a track they like, they get a little shot of dopamine. So, you know, as the years go by, that could always stay with them. That's my own, you know, theory. That could be. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think part of Blink that a lot of people or so many other bands don't have is that there's this element of humor that is almost yeah that's true a part of the music itself and as a result i think that does tie into what you're saying where it's music that kids like and it's music that teenagers like when it was around and now those teenagers are adults and those adults are showing their kids the music they listened to when they were teenagers and that cycle mm-hmm. keeps perpetuating itself but because humor is such a big element of the band I think they've had a a sort of unprecedented amount of success in that genre and almost defining defining genre. Sure, yeah, definitely. But as a result, you get fully grown men who respond to your "What question should I ask him?" and he goes, oh, "How big is his dick?" I'm like, oh, "Yeah," my I'm just like, "What?" It's it. The, uh, what's, and I've, I've told Tom this. I'm like, "Dude, I've been in uh, Nine Inch Nails for however many years it was at the time," and I'm like. Trent is a dude who is incredibly respected and people have obsessed over him. The, the, the band predates Blink by almost a decade, so, somewhere around there. And I'm like, there's some weird fanaticism with Blink fans where it's, it's unreal. And here's, here's a, a shitty story that just kind of puts you in the mindset of what I'm talking about where this sort of, I wouldn't call it a destructive obsession. Again, not a psychologist sort of thing. <laughs> but there was a time, it could have been six, seven, maybe eight years ago. There were a bunch of fires in San Diego. And I don't know if this was when Blink or when Tom was still with Blink or after he was with Blink. And these are things that you see on comment sections. A- anybody can look through a comment section to verify where I'm coming from here. But this story in particular. A quick video was taken of them literally evacuating this building, the studio, kind of getting the favorite pieces of gear out because, hey, you never know, the building might end up in ashes, you know, mm-hmm. on the ground. And somebody's like, I hope your studio burns down so you can get back to Blink. I'm like, that's one of the most fucked up things I've ever heard. Wow. Yeah. And, and there's that sort of darkly obsessive thing ironically over such a happy-go-lucky band i'm just i just it's it's mind-boggling to me yeah i mean that's part i don't really read comments i'll I'll like skim them but most of the time i don't need to unfortunately i'm a i'm a magnet for oh no they are train wrecks they're it's a it's a bad habit but i really think for a good portion of society you know the 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 portion that hides behind Computers, the keyboard, yeah, and their voice is the keyboard, which is a big part of the demographic. It is just, yeah. it's dark out there, and I and I look at it, it's like a, I, it's a train wreck. I can't look away. 
Have you had any like uh, conversations with uh, Tom about aliens? Because I mean, I saw his um, Joe Rogan interview. Which, by the way, I think uh, Joe Rogan should apologize to him. He was kind of a dick. Oh, was he? I thought like, so. Like, I mean, uh, I don't think it was perhaps the uh, the wisest decision. Oh, you know what? I know you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Where he talked about him afterwards. Yeah, I don't think it was. Yeah, the that was in poor taste to go on a very well known podcast with an enormous viewership to talk about things that you are legally unable to discuss. So you yeah. can take that one of two ways. He's telling the truth and he can't say these things or he's lying and he's bullshitting and he has nothing to talk about. I know he's got plenty to, to talk about. And I just felt like as a result of that little, you know, the Tic Tac video, so to speak, that that UAP that was looked like a Tic Tac. Sure. Yeah at this is like this is the thing you're talking about and just kind of belittling it i get where he was coming from but i feel that once the the navy kind of vindicated and said yeah we actually have no idea what that is mm-hmm. i think that would have been a nice moment for joe to be like hey man i thought you were nuts i take it back granted that doesn't mean there was an alien in the craft but the fact that it was something that the u.s government can't define or has no idea what it is i think says a lot it's almost worse if it's not an alien, in my opinion. Okay, so so like, what what's your take on uh, aliens? Well, my take, regardless of of Tom and any sort of conversations we've had, I've always been of the belief that there's way too much out there for us to be the only living beings. It's a matter of sure. odds. The odds. I mean, how do you even calculate odds if everything is supposedly infinite? So there has to be something else out there, and. That, of course, leads one to the question of, assuming there are things out there, are they like us? Are they vastly superior to us technologically, mentally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it? Or are there cave people out there who have no idea about anything? It could be all of the above. So you never know. Wouldn't that be crazy? But let's, let's assume that there are other beings that are equal to us. We've made it to space. Okay. That means they have the ability to make it to space. And at some point or another, if you're close enough, there's somewhere else to go. But uh, these are just, in my opinion, logical assumptions. Now that being said, Tom Tom talks about stuff every now and then. I'm just like, what are you talking about? But, you know, he's got friends that uh, I don't have. So there you go. Um, one thing I will say, regardless of any sort of detail, I think his passion for the for the subject is delightful. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, he's got a whole. Wasn't he making a documentary, or didn't he make like a documentary about like? Uh, Probably. I yeah. He's doing so many things and always has. I'm just like, huh? There could be aliens here right now. There could be. You never know. I I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised by that. We're gonna switch gears here a, l- a little bit. So you said you're working on your fourth movie. I'm not aware of the other three. They're not out yet. Oh well, that would be why. And one of them is, is Tom's actually. Okay. Of California. Yeah, maybe that's what you're thinking of. It's not a documentary. Monsters of California, this sort of coming of age adventure that, of course, has aliens in it other sorts of supernatural beings and entities oh. government secrecy all the uh all the fun you would expect to come from the mind of tom DeLong. but it was a lot of fun to work on and i'm actually excited for that to finally see the light of day because from a compositional perspective it was a lot of fun to split myself between a very specific sort of orchestral adventure score and an electronic score that was able to work in more modern somber scenes. And when I say somber, I don't mean sad. I just mean like intense. It was probably a better word. Okay. So it was a lot of fun to, to write such a, it's almost like two different scores to make sense of, of this kind of movie. And I don't, I don't mean that my score is what makes sense of the movie, but you have all these different uh, emotions that are, woven with a 
with the storyline that you have to find the proper accompaniment musically to make it less of a sort of amalgamation of all these different things. It's kind of like sure. ingredients in food. It's not really food until you put it all together often enough. Mm. That was a weird analogy, but you get my point. No, yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. Did you make That's this over, like, <laughs> did you make it over COVID? Like, while yeah. that was happening? Okay, yeah. gotcha. And it was it was odd because... Uh, my brother Aaron wrote some stuff for the movie as well, and he actually got started on it before I did. And and Tom basically wanted to lay out a foundation of the type of tonality he was looking for. So in a sense, I almost had a bigger uphill battle as the composer. You know what uh, demoitis is? I'm assuming it's where you add too many things to your demo? No, it's when you get so used to the demo. Oh, okay, okay. Things may be a little off-putting. And I'm not saying that demoitis is is really what I I had to deal with too often. It was more of somebody putting, or two people putting out this idea, and then me having to go, okay, I see what you're saying, but I think it should be this. And then finding a way to bring both of those ideas together into something that we were all Okay. So it was interesting. Demo-itis. I've never heard of that before. It's a good one. I'm going to have to start diagnosing my friends with that. Yeah, there you go. Got a case. Got a case, man. I'm assuming over COVID, did you work like in isolation then? Yeah, pretty much in this room. Oh, wow. Yeah, not leaving the house was very easy for me. It was too easy for me, actually. Oh, really? I, you know, I feel less insensitive saying this now, but lockdown was great for me. I loved it. (laughs) I was able to... I mean, fortunately, I have the personality to just stay at home. For the extroverts out there, I did feel bad for them. Mm-hmm. But I like being at home, and I like focusing on whatever it is I feel like focusing on. So as I said at the very beginning of this, once we all realized that COVID wasn't going to be over in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, I realized, okay, I've actually been given a gift of time here that I've never had because for the who knows how many years pre-pandemic my life had ping-ponged between touring and then writing and recording my own music at home so i never had the time to just say i'm not doing anything so i'm gonna study film scoring and it's something i had wanted to do for a long time because as i mentioned earlier my love of mozart and just classical music in general i've always loved orchestral scores, especially those of of John Williams, which most people do, whether they know it or not. But I've always seen film music is that medium where you can completely get away with writing orchestrally, writing electronically, writing with organic instrumentation. And somehow all of that stuff lives in the same space for the same purpose of supporting whatever it is that's happening on screen. So I really enjoyed it, but I'm, uh, and I am enjoying it. I'm just very thorough. And I know a lot of people just like they can say, cool, I bought a guitar a month ago. I can start a band. A lot of people get into the scoring space and like, I, I got some plugins. I can do stuff. And I'm not saying that you can't, that's, that's, that's not my point, but I'm not that kind of person. So I bought and went through a stack of books and I'm going through another stack of books and tutorials and so many things on the internet are great to learn from, but I really wanted to put in my, my due diligence, if you will, and really learn the craft. And I'm always learning. I think anybody who cares about always trying to do their best is always learning. Are you still trying to learn the cello? I never wanted to learn the cello, although it's an awesome instrument. I (laughs) was asked by Trent if I could, and my answer was not, not yet. But what are, you, <laughs> what are you looking for? And yeah, there are three three pieces that we have played since about 2013. Wow. A couple of Nine Inch Nail songs. And actually, one Nine Inch Nail song, a film score piece, and a How to Destroy Angels song. Luckily for me, coincidentally, they were all in the same key. So the same three notes that I had to play, I'm like... I got this. Oh, snap. 
Yeah, but uh, yeah, I took lessons for a while after rehearsals on on Wednesdays or Thursdays. Kind of gets a bit blurry, but uh, it's a phenomenal instrument. It's just, it's one of those things where the barrier to entry is far greater than the guitar or even, I mean, the piano is the the quickest barrier entry. You can hit a key and it's going to sound, it's going to hit the same note whether you hit it or I hit it. Yeah, play a fretted instrument. You have to get used to the pressure you have to apply so you can hit a clean note. But when you're playing an unfretted, uh, fretless instrument, that you need the right technique to rub horsehair on it at the right angle to not get a screech. Mm. It, it's just there's so much. The vibrato too. Very difficult. Yeah, I commend a string virtuoso of any kind. So you play. You play bass, you play guitar, you play drums, you play piano, and you sing. I mean, I think you got What's it all, man. <laughs> You've conquered uh, it all. You're the. I, did buy, I bought a um, a clarinet at the top of the pandemic because I was reading these orchestration manuals, and I was like, you know what? I've actually never played a wood a woodwind. Uh, any, a wind instrument of any kind, brass, nothing. Certainly not a, a reed instrument. So I bought one. And I was like, I'm going to learn how to play this. But then I was like, I have better things to do with my time. So I was able to play one little five-note run up and down slowly. Sounded okay. And I was like, I'm going to actually use my time. On this. <laughs> I'm going to pass on this one. Same thing with the violin. I tried it when I was, I don't know, maybe 17. And I could play... Uh, Fairly poorly intonated G scale up and down in the a major scale in the first position. And I was like, mm -hmm. for me to get good at this, I would have to spend far more time than I have. So I, I recognize that. But fortunately for the other instruments you mentioned that I that I play well, I I did it at the, the, the early years of my life where I was able to just pick it up naturally and, and put in the time. Are you uh, releasing new uh, new regime music? Ilan Rubin music. Oh, so, excuse me, excuse me. That's all right. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I am. Yeah, so I put out a few songs last year and the year before, but this year I'm going to be on a more regimented sort of release schedule. So I've got three in the bag right now that'll be coming out every three or four weeks. And as those are coming out, I will be writing the next batch to release after that. But the goal is to put out a new song every three to four weeks for the entirety of next year. Sweet. Will they sound kind of like the new regime since that's kind of your like... I mean, I'm sure there's something inherently there because it is coming from me, but yeah, but it'll continue to be different from, from one song to the next. Dope. I, I've, I've enjoyed not having to think about anything in an album format. So if I write one song that is drastically different to the one... The one preceding it, it doesn't matter because they don't technically have to live next to each other. All right, so if you guys want to hit him up on Instagram, are you on Twitter? I am. I should use it more. I was hacked for a solid week, and it was uh, weirdly disturbing because, I mean, it sounds funny, but the person converted my page into a front for selling PS5s right for the holidays. But the disturbing part was that even though he had changed the background to the Twitter profile and changed the name and everything, he was approaching people through the DMs as me and basically Ooh. saying like, yeah, if you buy a PS5, I'll send you a signed pair of sticks. I'll have my assistant, assistants in the mount as if I have a fucking assistant. And that was dark, watching how many people fell for it and how many people he was trying to dupe it just it felt dirty and i had nothing to do with it but thankfully my my wife knows plenty of people i was like we need to get him his account back and uh she did so if it weren't for her i'd wow. still PS5s, man <laughs> did you guys ever like find out who was doing it like who the person was behind it no so oh man a life asshole somewhere all right so where else can people check you out at obviously on all the streaming services uh elon mm. rubin is what the latest music has been released as there's all the new regime stuff as you said but yeah i'll be releasing new music under lon rubin you know i hate to say it but after being bullied by my my two 
female managers who are both younger than me, um, I did, I did have to start a TikTok. But you know, I try to put out some some good, informative, inspiring things out there, all revolving around you know music, dogs. I'm not I'm not out there dancing with my shirt off, pointing at stuff, but uh, I'm there as well. So if you if you venture to look for me in the social media universe, you will find me. But yeah, Elon Rubin music is what that is. YouTube, right. there you go. Everything yeah. from YouTube. So yep, Elon Rubin music. Sweet. All right, man. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. All right. That is our show for this week. Remember to follow Ilan on Instagram and all his socials. Again, make sure to subscribe to this channel. You can always email the show at theclintnorrisshow at gmail.com, or you can call. That number is 612-888-0031. And you can always follow me on Instagram. My Instagram is clint.norris. I'm also on Twitter. You can also hit me up there. So that's our show for this week. Take care. Yeah.